Welcome to the Advisory Opinions Podcast. I'm David French with Sarah Isker, and we've got lots to cover today. Lots to cover. In fact, we have so much to cover that we've punted some of it already, already punted to Thursday. So we're not going to do a lot of like beginning chit chat because we're going to dive in and we're going to have four big subjects. We're going to talk about the terrible uh, school shooting in Michigan and the Really um, interesting charges of involuntary manslaughter leveled against the parents, parents who promptly kind of sort of went on the run. I think it's a fair way to say it, but we're very quickly caught. We're also going to talk about um, a couple of Supreme Court cases that Sarah is going to brief you on that are very, very important, but have definitely gotten lost in all of the Dobbs conversation. And then we're going to end up with some Dobbs conversation where we're going to take on some of the questions and and vitriolic accusations leveled against one Sarah Isger in the <laughs> comment section. And so Sarah is going to have a chance to respond to those. So stay tuned. That's going to be not, not necessarily spicy, Sarah, is it? I haven't decided yet. You haven't decided? Well, good. Well, then all the more reason to stay tuned. So, but let's start with um, the Michigan case. This is really dreadful. Um, It's a horrible case and it's got a unique twist to it in that the parents have been charged. And I'm not going to say parents have never been charged in a school shooting because there's an awful lot of school shootings that have occurred that have not not made headlines, for example, and there hadn't been a lot of national follow-up. But Sarah, I don't know of parents being charged, and I'm sure readers can correct me, in any of sort of the quote-unquote big school shootings. Um, This seems pretty new to me. And interestingly, the student was charged with terrorism. So two unique charges in a school shooting case, the terrorism charge and the involuntary manslaughter charge for the parents. Yeah, yeah. So let me give you sort of the basic facts to it. And Sarah, I'd love your initial response. And in the reality is, and also one other thing is that um, manslaughter in, so they're being charged with involuntary manslaughter. And, and basically that means when you kill another person without intent or unintentionally. Um, and so this is an unintentional killing. And, and here's the basic timeline. And we'll put, um, and this was as outlined at a press conference announcing the charges. It's in an uh, uh, article we'll put in the show notes. But here, here's the basic timeline. And really, it's kind of shocking how fast everything unfolded. So on November 26th, the father of the shooter um, purchased a Sig Sauer SP-22 9-millimeter handgun. Apparently, it looks like for his son, his son, very young, 15, um, his, uh, the, the mom posted a message on social media later that day that showed them that said mom and Sunday testing out his new Christmas present. Uh, Three days later on November 29th, a teacher saw the shooter searching about ammunition on his cell phone during class, leading to a meeting with the student. Um, The mother was contacted about the inappropriate internet search. The school followed up with an email, got no response from the parents on the same day. Uh, the mom texted her son saying, quote, LOL, I'm not mad at you. You have to learn not to get caught, unquote. Uh, on the 30th, 
Now, this is the, the day. This is the day. A teacher finds and takes a picture of a note on the shooter's desk that depicted drawings of a gun, bullet, blood everywhere, a shooting victim, a laughing emoji, and it had the words on there, thoughts won't stop, help me, my life is useless, and quote, the world is dead. So the parents of the shooter were immediately summoned to school for a meeting. They did not ask the son whether he had a gun with him. They did not search his backpack um, and for a gun, which he did in fact have apparently in his backpack. Then the parents left the school without their son. Just a couple of hours later, 12.51 p.m., he starts shooting, kills four students. And 30 minutes after that, the mom texts her son and says, don't do it. But it was already done. It was over. Uh, at 1.37, the father called 911 to report the gun missing and said he thinks his son might have done it. And his, well, his son might have it. That's the, those are the fundamental factual outlines of the case. Um, Sarah, your thoughts about this? I've, cause I've got some questions, but I'm very interested in hearing your thoughts. So on the one hand, obviously in that community, there's going to want to be a desire to punish the parents, including criminally. There's things they did that were, I mean, obviously in hindsight, terribly irresponsible. The question is, legally, you don't get to think that much about the hindsight. You're supposed to think about it before the crime occurs and whether their actions um, could foreseeably lead to death. Um, So then the question is, what is the action that they took that could reasonably lead to death? Is it buying the gun as a Christmas present for the child? Probably not. Is it not locking the gun up sufficiently? I don't know what precautions they were taking, whether the son found the key, whether the gun was never locked in the first place. That's one that I'm interested in more facts about. And I don't think Michigan requires guns to be locked up. Okay, well, then that's going to be hard to say that that was then foreseeable if there's no legal requirement to do so. Um, Three, that they didn't check their son's backpack for the gun at whatever point, when he went to school that day, when they went to the school and they saw this drawing. But the problem with that one is that neither did the school. Right at that point, the teacher seen the drawing. And by the way, can you imagine being that teacher? You see the red flag, you call everyone you're supposed to call, you do everything you're supposed to do, and you don't prevent the school shooting that happens just a few hours later. It just so awful. Uh, But my point being, if it's the backpack, the gun being in the backpack at the school, there's an argument to be made then that everyone had some responsibility to check the backpack. At that point, everyone had seen the drawing and nobody checked his backpack. Nobody asked him the question. Uh, So I guess the, the problem from a legal sense is You need to be able to point to a specific action, not just the atmospherics of bad parenting. Right. To say what the action that led to the involuntary manslaughter is. And um, I'm not sure I see it right now. That doesn't mean more facts can't come to light, but it's hard for me. Yeah, this is hard for me as well. Um, You know, if you look in high, you, you mentioned the word hindsight and you look back on the the 29th when he was searching about ammunition on his cell phone during class, 
which definitely sounds ominous now, especially when you have the flippant mom response, LOL, I'm not mad at you. You have to learn not to get caught. Except they bought their kid a gun for Christmas, which again, you can talk about that being irresponsible parenting, but I'm not surprised that a kid who just got a gun for Christmas wants ammunition to go with his gun. Exactly. That that's exactly my point. If you've just got a gun and you've just been given a gun, you're going to want ammunition for it. And it's not unreasonable to think that somebody would open their phone and search for ammunition. And, you know, we don't know what the policies are at the school um, regarding those kinds of things. But that by itself is relatively benign. And so is if you're a parent and you've got your kid a gun and you don't have the slightest inkling that your kid might be shooting up the school, which is a profoundly rare thing to do and probably not something on top of a parent's mind in the absence of an ex of facts that we don't know about yet. This is the thing that, that I think uh, there's stuff we just don't know. That, which seems very ominous in hindsight, in the moment, I don't think you impose a legal obligation on a parent there. In the 30th, the interesting thing to me is the parents are being charged in, in part for not taking their kid home and not searching their backpack. Okay, but you said it very well. The school didn't search the backpack either. And it seems to me that... Uh, if you take a if you take a probable cause analysis, in other words, a school is an instrument of the state. What kind of ability does it have to search a, a student's backpack? Um, the combination of the ammunition statement on the 29th plus the note on the 30th gives you enough to, I would say, search the backpack. Now, we might have a lawyer uh, listening to us. I'd be eager to hear from somebody listening who says, no, actually not. Or there might be an obscure Michigan regulation regarding students, which would shock me if that was the case. But it seems to me you would have an affirmative obligation. You would have the, the state would have had the ability to do something here as well. Send the kid home, search the backpack, and then to criminally charge the parents for not doing what the state didn't do. Again, this is a, there's a lot we're going to learn. There was a lot we're going to learn, uh, and maybe they haven't showed all their cards yet. Uh, but, but this, this is the is... problem. You have for involuntary manslaughter, again, this isn't bad parenting. Um, I actually think there's other lesser charges that might be easier to make on negligence, uh, child endangerment, something like that. But for involuntary manslaughter, you've got to prove that the death was foreseeable. Which action here? was foreseeable. And if it was foreseeable, then you have to, you know, it has to be something where the state somehow couldn't have known that it was foreseeable, but the parents were supposed to see that it was foreseeable. Uh, I don't see the action here yet. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to be, it's going to be very interesting. Um, and I, <laughs> the thing that ironically enough, and I'm, I'm very curious about is the parents, while all of this is unfolding, pull $4,000 in cash out of their bank account, get in their SUV, SUV and, and disappear. They just disappear for a while. Which, okay, I had, I initially was like, I think I understand this, but then I thought I understood it less. So let me give you what I thought at first. Okay. Uh, your 
the entire community hates you and is blaming you for this, not legally, but morally. And so you need to get out of town because you literally like can't go to the grocery store, can't go to restaurants. So you need to go somewhere where you're not going to be recognized to just like ride this out a little bit before you can come back into your community. And so you take out the money, the cash, um, to, you know, pay for various and sundries, right? Things that like your credit card maybe won't pay. It's always smart to have some cash when you travel. But the part that's a little weird about that is that your son is currently being held in jail. Yeah. It's a little weird to flee the community and not want to be in closer proximity to your son who is in crisis right now. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, there's so much about this. You know, I think part of it is you have, you know, there's so much about this that is, that screams a, a parental problem here that you don't necessarily, that you haven't seen in some of these other cases, perhaps. And I think that you, part of it is you have prosecutors who are looking at cell phones and seeing things like, LOL, I'm not mad at you. You have to learn not to get caught the day before the shooting. Yep. At the same time, I have to say, like, if you think your son's having some deep mental troubles, I don't think, I really don't think, I guess, that parents go out and buy that kid a gun or saying LOL about ammunition searches. To me, it's actually exculpatory. It means they truly had no idea what their son was thinking about, contemplating, none of that, because even the most, um, the worst parents don't want that in part because the likelihood of your son coming out alive in that situation wasn't very high. He did again, hindsight though. Um, you, you just aren't responding LOL. So I think that's going to be in some ways exhibit number one for the defense. They thought this was a normal Thanksgiving. They thought their kid was behaving normally. See, he's searching for ammunition and she's laughing it off because her son's fine. He's searching for ammunition for his new gun. And these you know, she's thinking that it's just these uptight teachers who don't like guns, who don't like the Second Amendment. Lots of people buy their kid a gun. I mean, 15 arguably is late on the side of buying your kid their first gun in some parts of the country. Yeah, yeah. So it's it is a um, I think the the hindsight point is the key point here. After people have been killed, when you're shocked and you're grieving and you're starting to search through the shooter's belongings and searching through their cell phone and you've got an LOL from a parent the day before, it's a shocking it is. moment. It's a shocking moment. And, and again, I, we've already said, we've said this three times, but I'll, we'll say it four times. There's, there might be stuff. There might be stuff that has not yet been disclosed here. Um, but in the absence of that, you know, I've saw a lot of quick sort of Twitter commentary it says, I've seen enough. <laughs> I've seen enough. These are proper charges. Um, I am not so sure. Can I tell you, since we talked about plea bargaining uh, in the previous podcast and that, you know, uh, in the high 90s of criminal charges are pled out and that to me, that's actually evidence of sort of a rot in the system. But maybe because of that conversation, I was thinking about this where you have the child charged, I mean, just so many charges, uh, he will spend the rest of his life in jail if he is found guilty on all of those in prison, if he's found guilty on all of those charges. The parents have now been charged with involuntary manslaughter, which carries a hefty sentence as well. 
one could imagine the possibility of offering the parents a plea agreement in exchange for reducing their son's sentence to have them plead guilty. And that to me gets to one of those like really coercive uh, plea negotiations. And, you know, folks, we, I hope we will talk more about the plea part of the criminal justice system and why I guess I think it is not great as it is right now. But use that thought experiment and you'll see why. You and I do not think that legally at this point with the evidence that we have, that the state can meet its burden on involuntary manslaughter. At the same time, you have a community that is grieving, deeply upset. The parents acted irresponsibly. Do you want to roll the, you know, that dice at a jury? Maybe not. And then the prosecutor saying, we'll reduce your son's sentence. He'll get out. He won't spend his entire natural life in prison. In exchange, you're going to plead guilty. And what do you do as a parent with that? Well, I don't know about these parents. They've gotten their SUV and headed off, headed for the hills. <laughs> so I, I don't know. So we'll we'll see about that. But you raise a really good point. And I do think it would be fantastic to have a plea bargain focused pod where we just we just bring in we bring in an expert on how this actually works. Um and and talk through it because we had a lot of interesting discussion about the plea bargain side of the conversation that we had with Damon um, Preston, my, the Kentucky public advocate, who we brought in as a guest to discuss the Rittenhouse case. Um, lots of interesting discussion. Some emails defending the um, defending the 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 current practice. Others strongly condemning it. I think it's worth a really good conversation. But we're gonna have our eye on this case. Um, cause I'm very interested in how this comes out. Very interested. And, and, you know, I, I do think the kind of, there is, can I, can I, uh, inflame the comment section again for just a moment? It can't be worse than what I did last week. <laughs> uh, it can't be worse. No, it might be. It might be. So I think I have a real concern and here is my real concern that the gun rights movement has increasingly become a gun right a gun celebration moving into a gun fetish movement um and so what we have seen i don't know if you if some of you guys are on twitter but i don't know if you say representative massey posting a posting a christmas picture with he's holding a uh what looks like a now um second firearm expert twitter Looks like a saw squad automatic weapon that he's got in his hands. Um, a lot of AR style assault rifles in the hands of his sons and kids, other weapons. Everyone's got a gun at their Christmas picture, and he's posting that on the internet, probably to trigger the libs and own the libs. And it it was frankly to me, and I'm somebody who's been a Second Amendment supporter my entire life. I own guns. Um to me, it was gross, and I'm getting sick and tired. I'm getting sick and tired of the Republican politician gun picture, Sarah. You know, the one where the Republican politician on the campaign ad is showing off all or part of their arsenal. Lauren Boebert, when she does TV hits, she'll sometimes have crossed AR-15s in the background. Um, that's what I call a difference between gun rights, saying, 
hey, owning a gun is a serious act which requires an, an enormous amount of responsibility. When you talk about the li with liberty comes responsibility, with a gun, that is true in spades. And it turns into sort of this now celebratory cultural marker. And I am, I'm pretty convinced that is a negative way to treat firearms. It is a negative way to treat firearms, Sarah. So I might be wrong. Have maybe, at me. Yeah, I was going to say, maybe me. you're outdoing me here a little in the comment section. We'll find out. Uh, <laughs> by the way, I noticed uh, I was chuckling to myself as you were talking about that because your swords are missing. They used to be, I used to be able to see them in your shot and I don't see them right now. Well, I've only had one of my swords in the shot. Um, but yeah, somebody came over and I was showing it and I just set it back next to the other sword. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> speaking of celebratory sword showing off. But yes, no, I, th those swords, um, I, I feel my conscience is clear, Sarah, showing off my cavalry saber. My conscience is clear. All right. Should we move to the Supreme Court? Yes, let's do it. Okay. So. Obviously, there were other cases argued last week, not just Dobbs, the abortion case. However, I want to be honest, like there, there wasn't a lot of fireworks, except there were maybe supposed to be other uh, fireworks around this one case. It was called American Hospital Association v. Becerra. And I want to be very honest with you, David. Um, it doesn't matter what this case was about. And also, I'm going to be largely unable to explain to you what this case was about. Um, there were some just wonderful moments as the different justices tried to talk about the statutory provision at issue. I want to read you two of them. This is the Chief Justice uh, at the very beginning of the argument. Well, I don't know, maybe accuracy, but the transparency of section 13951T14A32, they haven't succeeded in that objective. And I swear to you, David, he rattled that off. Like, <laughs> I don't know, like it was his telephone number. Uh, it was really something. I don't know what that something could be called. Um, but so then you have, Justice Kagan, with maybe my favorite, she says, but aren't those adjustments the adjustments that led to the average price number? Now, the transcript has been edited here. She says, what double I, I don't even know how to do this, is referring to are adjustments made to the average price. The transcript was changed to what Roman numeral two I don't even know how to do this, is referring to proving that I suppose Justice Kagan actually didn't know how to do this. But now I'm even more confused because to me, there is a thing such as double I in statutory language, but there's also a thing called Roman numeral two, and they both look like I's. One's a capital I and one's a lowercase I. So now I don't know which section of the statute she was referring to. But um, that's not why I listened to this argument, David. It's because there were rumors out in the world, maybe in my household, that this would <laughs> maybe be the case. In your household. Okay. This would be the case to take down Chevron. The gas station? 
<laughs> so I thought we'd spend just a couple moments talking about different types of deference. That's right. We are doing it. We are doing Chevron, Skidmore, and our deference, the long-awaited explanation. Oh. I know. Now, we've done this before. but this we've is done a for little all, bit. A little bit. This is bit. for all our new listeners who really have, this has been missing in their life. That's right. So, yeah. We've shown some Chevron ankle, but I <laughs> want to show, you know, this is like the full Monty on Chevron Skidmore an hour. Okay. Wow. Should, do we need a rating on this podcast? We might. We might. Okay. It's going to get pretty sexy. Okay. So in, uh, right, you have the creation of the administrative state that in some ways goes back to the very beginning that the executive branch was always tasked by Congress to work out some details. But the explosion of the administrative state as we currently know it uh, certainly is a progressive era 1920s phenomenon that then, I mean, really on steroids in the like 1960s and 70s. By 1984, the court is really struggling with how you deal with and what you do when the administrative agency is interpreting law for itself. And so in 1984, you have this case, quite famous, called Chevron USA, and yes, it is the gas company, versus Natural Resources Defense Council. Doesn't super matter what the case was about, but the result is something called the Chevron Doctrine, Chevron Deference. And this is basically where if an administrative agency has, through formal process, uh, a formal opinion, rulemaking, anything that would carry the weight of law from the administrative agency, interpreted a congressional statute ambiguity uh, or that the more likely that Congress actually left to the administrative agency that decision-making, um, then the courts defer to the agency almost entirely. I mean, it has to be an unreasonable reading. Either the statute had to be clear and clearly in opposition to what the agency did, or it has to be arbitrary and capricious how the agency uh, interpreted it. I mean, basically, you can't win. Chevron is uh, the rational basis of administrative agency deference. And there's lots of people who are getting very cranky about Chevron because the result has been that administrative agencies run wild. They are doing shots at the bar, lifting up their shirts on camera, um, they are not behaving the way you want administrative <laughs> agencies to behave when they go off to college. <laughs> well, sadly, when it comes to some agencies, that kind of, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Anyway, well, we, we, we won't dive into various agency scandals, but. All right. So then we have Skidmore deference, a lesser known deference, by the way, but a nevertheless um, fun one. Skidmore deference basically says if it's not a formal rulemaking. It doesn't carry the weight of law. It's maybe a opinion letter that the agency sends out. That gets Skidmore deference, which is not really that much deference. It's sort of like, okay, we'll give the agency the opportunity to persuade us that, um, that based on the validity of their reasoning, its consistency with earlier and later pronouncements, the thoroughness in which they considered it, um, that we will defer to the agency in that case. But Skidmore deference is kind of just, did you, did you make a good case at the court? Our deference, and that is spelled A-U-E-R. And I use our deference the way that I use Foucault. 
Anytime I'm trying to make fun of stuff lawyers talk about, like everyone should know what it is in like the legally nerdiest conversation, I throw in terms like our deference. Um, and similarly, when I'm making fun of snotty college students, I talk about Foucault. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so our deference basically says that if the agency has made a rule and there's some ambiguity in the rule, the courts let the agency interpret their own rule and they defer to the agency's interpretation. So our deference and Chevron deference are quite similar. Chevron deference is letting the agency interpret congressional legislation. Our deference is letting the agency interpret its own rulemaking power of law type legislation. That's not legislation, I know, but rulemaking has the power of it. So, you know. Okay, so for a long time, we've been wanting to get rid of Chevron deference because it gives the administrative state, which already has enormous power, even more power because the courts don't really have the ability to step in. And this was the case that was going to take down Chevron. Uh, Maybe, maybe, David. It was actually (laughs) not a huge part of this case. There was this one moment where... Uh, at the end of Don Verrilli, Don Verrilli is the former solicitor general under Obama who argued the Obamacare case. I got to say, there are arguments where I'm not sure Verrilli's at his best. Uh, this ain't one of them. Verrilli loves himself some in the weeds, corporate, you know, Supreme Court litigation. He is just crushing it, explaining this very complicated, confusing statute with all of the correct cross citations, Roman numerals, et cetera, um, and really good explainer mode. So Justice Alito says, again, this is at the end. Yeah. Can I just take you back to Justice Thomas's first question? If the only way we can reverse the DC circuit is to overrule Chevron, do you want us to overrule Chevron? Pause. Mr. Varelli. Yes. We want to win the case. Yes. (laughs) 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 so Verrilli who actually doesn't want to overturn Chevron uh you know was forced to give the answer that he had to give because he represents a client yes we want to win the case (laughs) I love that so much I love that so much um I actually was uh, I did a practice moot court session for a college moot court team uh last week in the evening and I I sprung that kind of question on the students because, you know, the the problem you can obvious uh, you could obviously tell it was a, a problem for it was a national moot court competition around vaccine mandates, uh, which is very timely. And I asked a question I can't remember the exact wording, which which was essentially, what if your client wins, but you don't get anything more than that? Because essentially, their the under the facts, their client was kind of a hermit. You know, they never really interact with the public. They live alone in the woods and, and essentially, well, what if the rule is if you don't interact with people, you don't have to get the vaccine. And one of the responses was, no, that's not, that's not good enough. I was like, time out, <laughs> time out. <laughs> Your client always wins. Mm-hmm. You're yeah. representing a client, not a cause. So and- look, I don't think this argument was made in a way where Chevron there was just simply not the level of questioning and detail uh, that Chevron's going to get overturned in this opinion. Yes, you had Gorsuch all over it. We know that Gorsuch isn't a fan of Chevron. Alito and Thomas, um, even Barrett at one point kind of dipping her toe in the water to ask about Chevron. 
But so much of the argument was really about the actual statutory language in question. I think there is a chance, however, for our Chevron haters listening, that the result of this will actually be to cabin Chevron a little bit before you get to Chevron deference, because that's always been the issue, right? Is like, um, on top of the, once you have Chevron deference, the agency gets to do whatever it wants, because it's like this rational basis. Did you even possibly have a remote, uh, reasonable interpretation here? But, you know, that first step is, was the statute otherwise clear? And so you could cabin Chevron by saying you only get to Chevron deference when the statute hands it to the administrative agency in the first place. And in this case, interestingly, Justice Breyer was trying to make the argument that this, in fact, wasn't about Chevron deference at all, so we shouldn't get to Chevron deference. I think to me, he almost made the opposite point, which is this statute says something. It either says A or B. It's in fact not ambiguous, as in it didn't leave to the discretion of the agency what this was. Um, and so therefore, we can cabin Chevron in a way by saying the bar at which there needs to be, um, which you even get to Chevron deference is going to be raised. And the courts are going to take back some of those decisions when we're talking about legislation and not just leave to the agency to say, oh, see, it left us this discretion. And so we get to decide. Uh, but my overall prediction is this will not be the Chevron windfall that people were hoping for. So your your discussion of cabining Chevron, which seems to me to be the most likely course of action here, reminds me of a recurring theme on advisory opinions, which is the creation of zombie precedent. Ooh, yes. Which is, which is you don't exactly overrule the case. You just sort of cabinet so much that it is all, it's undead. Chevron has been heading that direction for the last 10 or so years. I mean, really, 2001, this case called Mead upholds Chevron. And pretty much since then, uh, it was upheld and then has become increasingly zombified. You know, like in the movies, it takes a minute for them to become a zombie. In this case, it's taking about 20 years. But Chevron is all but already a zombie precedent. It's why, in some ways, you think back to the Gorsuch hearing, Chevron was this huge deal at the Gorsuch confirmation hearing because he was so clearly opposed to wide agency latitude. And just in three years since he was confirmed, we're all sort of like, meh, that's not really where the fight is anymore because by and large, it's not really where the fight is anymore. Right, right. Yeah, it'd be an interesting to kind of list all of the meaningful zombie precedents. Chevron isn't quite there yet, but definitely. Um, Chevron's starting limp- to twitch and like, twitching. it sort of says brains a little too much. And it's got a weird marks on its arm that yeah. are like heading to the brain. Yeah, it's it just keeps talking about brains, but it's like still in normal conversation. And you're like, why are you bringing up brains so much, Chevron? But moaning and walking across, lurching across the land is like the lemon test. <laughs> that one might be so fully rotted. It's just a head laying on the ground, like biting at passersby. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we've got another case because yes. we got to get to spicy Sarah. Yes, okay. So uh, at conference, remember I talked about what would happen after Dobbs uh, and that on Friday they would have their conference. They would sit just the justices in their conference room and this, you know, do sort of a head count on where things land on Dobbs and who would be assigned the opinions. But they do other stuff at that conference as well, including 
review cert petitions. Um, and I think we've talked about the cert pool here before where uh, some justices pool their clerks to go through all of these thousands of cert petitions. Other justices have declined to join the cert pool in relatively recent history. And so uh, they have to go through all the thousands of cert petitions on their own. Regardless, the justices come in sort of knowing which cases um, they're thinking of granting cert for, but it's part of a conversation. And we, the public, know which cases are up for consideration at that conference. Um, And so we know that this Friday, there is a case up for discussion, up for conference. And I wanted to talk to you about it, David, because it is interesting to me. This is about the Title IX regulations requiring educational institutions to use the Supreme Court's definition of student-on-student sexual harassment and to provide students important procedural safeguards during Title IX disciplinary processes. Uh, This was uh, promulgated by the Department of Education during the Trump administration. You heralded this. You thought it was a great move by the Department of Education. Um, I agree. I'm not sure we're we, I'm not sure we agree for all the same reasons, but I actually think um, simply using that legal standard and the Supreme Court standard about pervasive, the pervasiveness of the harassment preventing a student from um, being able to actually utilize their educational opportunities, uh, which is a very rough definition um, from memory of the Supreme Court's standard, uh, is a good thing just because you don't need different standards running around here. It doesn't make any sense. Okay, so that took effect in August 2020. Then there were a whole bunch of lawsuits. The administration changed. And the new administration does not want to defend that regulation legally. This is like a weird administrative version of sue and settle. Sue and settle is the process uh, that has been, I think, correctly uh, attacked, whereby uh, an administration in a lawsuit with a friendly settles the lawsuit and therefore gets everything they want and doesn't actually have to go through the rulemaking process. Um, They get to pay out money sometimes to pet causes. And so it's called sue and settle because the whole thing is kind of a setup. They're not actually adversaries in the process. So this is like the Administrative Procedures version of that. They won't defend the regulation, but they also aren't going to go through notice and comment to change the regulation. If they went through notice and comment, it would be a multi-year process, but then it would be kind of bulletproof, if you will, because that's the process. The previous administration went through notice and comment. You can undo it through notice and comment. Them's the rules. But because of these lawsuits, they can just choose not to defend it, settle with they're non-adversaries, and the settlement can say, we will not enforce these rules. And then you just got rid of the regulation without having to go through multi-year notice and comment. Okay, so FIRE, your previous employer, and what does FIRE stand for again? Foundation for Individual Rights and Education. Cool. So FIRE wants to intervene to defend the regulation when the Biden administration won't. They, interestingly, uh, they had two of these going at once, one to the D.C. Circuit and one to a different circuit. I don't actually remember which one. 
Um, but basically, they won one and lost one on the exact same facts. Which, I mean, that is the circuit split of circuit splits. Uh, hard to distinguish at all why different courts are applying different legal standards about when a third party can intervene in a lawsuit on the exact same facts. And so while I think that overall this might not be a case that the Supreme Court would be that hot to trot on, uh, such a pure circuit split and an obvious circuit split, that that's like catnip to the Supreme Court. How could they not take it? And David, it's been the term of the intervener lawsuits. Remember, we had the Kentucky intervener lawsuit uh, where the Kentucky uh, attorney general wanted to intervene to defend the abortion statute after the governor's office switched political parties. Uh, They recently, over Thanksgiving, accepted another intervener case. Those would be their third intervener case for just this term, which also makes it both unlikely, but then like, I don't know, you've already taken two. What's a third? Okay, so that's the setup, David. Basically, when can a third party come in to defend these things versus allowing an administration to do these sue and settle type agreements? But, David, I, I, I do have some concerns about the larger implications of allowing third parties to come in all the time and intervene in these cases. What if the administration is defending it, but just not with the legal argument that you want? And the result, by the way, of interveners is it means the federal government can't settle a lawsuit without the intervener agreeing, basically. And so you're talking about far more litigation, far fewer settlements, a whole bunch of third parties coming in in any administration. Uh, I don't know. Even if you like this rule making that was done by the Department of Education, is this larger rule about interveners a good thing or a bad thing, David? Yeah, this is a classic example of when you break norms, the system struggles to respond. Oh, you're so right. That is the problem here. Yeah, it's so when you have a when you have a longstanding norm that people have come to rely on that says the government defends its own rules. Yes. Um, and we've relied on that. We have trusted that. That has been the system. And jurisprudence has been built on that. And then all of a sudden the government says, nah. Because let's be clear about one thing. The government here can actually change this regulation. They can. You know, the, the Biden administration can change this regulation. And so what then happens is, well, what if the rule creates substantive rights and the government doesn't defend a rule that creates substantive rights? Well, in that circumstance, what you've got is actually harmed parties who have a legal and a, a set of legal entitlements that are no longer being defended. And I feel much more comfortable about intervention in the in this circumstance where the government is just flat out not defending than I do in circumstances where the government is weighing in and doing so by all appearances vigorously, just not with the emphasis that you want or the tactics that you want or the specific leading with the specific argument that you think is best. I do think there's a, a pretty quantitative difference there or qualitative difference there. However, what that then raises is, well, now what if the government gets really sort of bad faithy and quote, I'm using air quotes now, defends. And it's obvious to everyone that the air quotes defends is going on. 
what do you do at that point? I mean, so yeah, again, we're, we're consistently running into the circumstance where when you break with patterns or practices that have been established and upon which an enormous amount of legal reliance has been built, there's often not a great judicial answer. This is SB8, right? You know, you had the, the judges in the Texas SB8 case, justices, I'm sorry, struggling with how do you do, how do you figure out a response to a, a law that's specifically designed to evade judicial review? What do you do about that? And when that's not the way laws are typically designed. So it, I'm really interested to see how they approach this conference. And by the way, just can I can I issue a lamentation? Well, wait, I'm not ready to leave this just yet. Okay. Okay. So one, I've got three points. One, note for our listeners, just because something is coming up at conference for the first time does not mean that we will hear about it when they issue the next set of orders. Things can get pushed over conference to conference to conference uh, for a long, long time. So we'll see what happens here. I could see this one being pushed over a few conferences. Um, Two... It's worth noting how this started. You know, we bemoan the Trump administration for norm breaking, but when it comes to a lot of these legal norms and the Department of Justice legal norms in particular, the breaking kind of started during the Obama administration. And this in particular started with DOMA. The Obama administration refused to defend the Defense of Marriage Act. Um, I understand why they didn't want to defend it, But it created this, oh, we just don't have to defend laws that we, as a policy matter, no longer agree with, even if there is a uh, reasonable legal defense to be made in favor of this law. It has had these ripple effects throughout. The Obama administration is the one who clearly started using sue and settle for strategic purposes. Um. I mean, just enormous amounts of money going to third-party organizations as part of these sue-and-settle agreements. Um, You know, and then you see a version of this happening in the Senate where Harry Reid gets rid of the filibuster for lower court judges. Well, you know what? Once you get rid of the filibuster for the things you want, guess what? Then Mitch McConnell comes around and gets rid of the filibuster for Supreme Court justices, and the left screams that that's norm-breaking. And it's like, well, No, when you start breaking the norm and our system doesn't know how to work around it, the whole dam breaks. And it's why I'm I'm not that sympathetic to either side who is either heavily for or heavily against the legislative filibuster because we've already gotten rid of the filibuster for judicial nominees. That's where the norm was originally broken, um, I think, by Harry Reid. So I totally agree this is a norm problem. Three, David, we still haven't heard about SB8. And there has been some debate in my household about whether the delay in hearing about the Texas bounty hunting abortion law is, in fact, because Texas is about to win. I, I, I have had the same thought. Um, I, I don't. I, very- I still think Texas is going to lose, but I agree. My numbers are shifting and like, you know, it was always the case that they could say. Uh, look, there's no way to get around this. You can always sue after it's been enforced. And that's the vehicle for challenging the constitutionality of a law like this. But woof, what's taking so long? My my general view, and, and tell me if you disagree, Sarah, every single week that passes without an SB8 decision is a greater likelihood that Texas wins. 
greater likelihood, yes. But you could, I could also see a world in which, for instance, it's 5-4 with Barrett writing the majority and Barrett says, I'm going to give Justice Thomas as long as he wants to write his dissent. Mm-hmm. And we're not going to rush him and no snarkiness. But <laughs> I agree that that's, that's getting less likely. I don't know. And Okay, now let, let's just completely go off the rails with pop psychology. All right. So if a majority of the court knows it's going to overturn Roe, um, are they going to post-haste put the, uh, set aside the Texas law? Um, I mean, I would still say yes, because this case isn't about Roe. It has nothing to right. do with the underlying abortion I law. Know. I think the two I are know. totally separate issues. Um, but like we've been poised to have our emergency pod and I really thought it would come before Thanksgiving. And here we are well after Thanksgiving. And it's going to happen, and it's going to happen some night where I like have dinner reservations. I'm not even going to tell you. <laughs> I have one dinner reservation for the entire month, and I'm not going to tell you what day it is because I don't want to jinx I'm just convinced. My, my oldest daughter has graduated from college on Friday, and I'm just convinced the decision is coming down during graduation ceremony. That's when my dinner reservation is. I have a <laughs> babysitter. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, don't do it. Members of the court who are listening... <laughs> Do not. Friday is off limits. It is off limits for the SBA decision. Thank you. We don't ask for much. We don't ask for much. Okay. So that's, that's the end of intervener, but you had a lamentation. Oh, I had a lamentation and that is sharp circuit splits do not always yield Supreme court cert grants. Um, and you know, there, there are circuit splits that kind of just kind of hang around out there. And I think the court sort of has this view of there are circuit splits and then there are circuit splits. And because I remember having high hopes going, this was going back a decade ago of getting a grant, of a cert grant, because what we would often have when we would file suit against uh, a speech code or on behalf of students who were censored on colleges, we would get relief and that the students were allowed to speak or the specific portion of the speech code that applied to the student's speech was changed, but other portions of the speech code remained. And immediately the court, the, the, um, the university would try to file a motion to moot our case. In other words, say, we've got what we want. Our clients are able to speak. Yes, true. We, in that sense, absolutely. We, we won one part of our lawsuit. Our clients were able to speak. The provision that that prevented them from speaking was changed, but we also had a part two, which was using the fact that they had enforced the speech code on our clients to challenge the whole darn thing, all of the provisions of the speech code. And that was very hit or miss as to whether we were able to do that at the circuit court level, whether circuit courts would allow us to do that. And we thought we had teed up some pretty sweet circuit splittage, Sarah, on that point 10 years ago, and it came to naught. It came to naught. Can I mention a sue and settle that is uh, percolating right now that people have probably heard about to like maybe put some more meat on the sue and settle description? Bonus? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the potential payments to the families of uh, children who were separated from their parents during the Trump administration policy of zero tolerance. Remember, there was that initial rumor of $450,000 per person 
something like so within a family, you could be talking about sort of over a million dollars. Um, that's an example of something like a sue and settle where there is a defense. You could go to trial, but this is the ACLU. And so they're getting a lot of political pressure, internally political pressure to settle the case out because they agree that the policy was inhumane, bad, um, not legal. And so now they're running into the political problem on the other side of giving large sums of money um, is maybe going to prove not politically popular. But that's an example of pressure to sue and settle. The ACLU sues and the administration settles with a friendly. Um, and that is a case that it's hard not to watch quite closely as that um, we continue to see news about that, including just a New York Times story this morning called What Does the U.S. Owe Separated Families? A Political Quandary Deepens. Man, we've got show notes. This, this episode is going to have some show notes. All right. We've got some time left, Sarah. Okay. Um, you have faced, face your critics, Sarah Isger. Face your critics. Let's start with a mea culpa. Okay. So I was talking about how it um, was not reasonable to me to be in favor of banning abortions, but not in favor of over-the-counter birth control. I assumed, but did not state in that premise that I was already excluding people who had a moral objection to birth control, a religious objection to birth control in the first place, because obviously then um, the two are unrelated in a lot of ways. Uh, So I am only talking about people from a policy standpoint who want to ban abortions from a policy standpoint, but from a policy standpoint, also are not in favor of over-the-counter birth control. Mea culpa, not at all what I meant, um, but I didn't clarify, and so I want to clarify now. But the comment section got pretty lit over something else. And on this one, it's just complicated. I don't actually know (laughs) if I'm right or wrong. It's just really complicated, David. So I want to read you one of the comments that launched a thousand ships. Okay. Um, To say, as both Sarah and David suggested, that to be pro-life means to support various programs supporting single mothers does not follow. I actually agree with that. And I wish we, you know, if we had spent more time, we could have had a whole podcast on policies that relate to children. And by the way, the policy is to relate to the children, same as the abortion policy, not to the mother. But hold on. In the same way as being pro-abolition does not require support for reparations. Interesting. I don't know that I agree with that at the time that abolition is effectuated. Um, To say that someone has been providing their labor for free, and so you will stop making them provide their labor for free tomorrow, but you will not pay them for their labor today, I don't know that that is consistent. But perhaps more to the point, David, let's add in Jim Crow. It, of course, does not follow one-to-one that being pro-abolition means that you are for the um, treatment of races equally under the law just because you're against getting rid of the badge of slavery. But doesn't it? (laughs) So that's all to say, I actually, I am... Uh, I should not have been so flippant in talking about universal pre-K, which is the example that I used. I take it back, the flippancy, certainly. I will say (laughs) that we offer universal kindergarten in this country, and it seems an arbitrary line 
to offer universal five-year-old schooling, but not universal four-year-old schooling. Um, especially if in my case, you are in favor of vouchers for that schooling, all of it, so that you as a parent should be choosing which school your kid goes to and there should be free schooling. And yeah, I guess I happen to think that schooling maybe should start a year earlier, but I agree that that is not one-to-one with the abortion argument and that someone feeling that, um, that, you know, children are being murdered does not mean that you think that education should start a year earlier. Acknowledged. I should have been more nuanced in how I was phrasing this. However, I actually do want to get back to the, I think that's in some ways a pretty good example in other ways, not because it's really, really fraught, but being pro-abolition does not require support for reparations. And I want to tack on does not require being against Jim Crow. David, what do you make of this? Do you think that my argument for that, if that's a pretty hard question, actually, that so is the what comes after in the pro-life discussion? Yeah. So this is interesting because you you mentioned the R word reparations and you just might as well. Is there such a thing as a hydrogen bomb grenade that you can. To be clear, I don't want to talk on? about 2021 reparations. I find that conversation deeply uninteresting. I want to talk about 1865 reparations. Yeah. So I so this is interesting uh, and a little bit of history. Um, you know, the 40 acres and a mule was the result of Sherman's special field order number 15, which confiscated Confederate land along the Rice Coast. And we're going to put a Washington Post story about this uh, into the show notes. Packed show notes today. (laughs) So 40 acres and a mule given to thousands of black families. But after Lincoln was assassinated, the order was reversed. The land given to former slaves was rescinded and returned to the Confederate landowners. Okay. So this is sort of the opening of one of the first really concrete betrayals of the end of reconstruction. There's a, there's a really interesting counterfactual in the United States of America that says, what if reconstruction never ended? And what if 40 acres on a mule was real, uh, and substantial for freed slaves. So there's a big counterfactual there, but I do think that here here is the conceptual issue where we can often lose ourselves in the weeds, but we can't lose the conceptual issue. And that conceptual issue is if you have an environment where abortion is banned by force of law, um, isn't there also an obligation to use your, your, isn't there also an obligation to ease the conditions that we know lead to abortion. Isn't there also that, that obligation? And isn't, doesn't that obligation exist if you're pro-life, regardless of whether abortion is banned? Now, what is one of the conditions that we know? Now, some of those conditions that lead to abortion are not necessarily within the realm of government to deal with. They're much more in the realm of private action and private care and private concern. Um, What's the, what does the government have to say when a family, like as I knew for one person, one friend of mine, where a mother and father were so ashamed that their daughter was pregnant that they started to try to force their daughter to get an abortion. The daughter resisted the parents, had the baby, and the parents feel incredible sadness that they ever tried to force an abortion. But the government doesn't have much of a role there, right? But if you're sitting there and you've got an enormous amount of economic insecurity, 
an enormous amount of economic insecurity. Is there some, and we know for a fact that money is a prime reason why, or lack of money is a prime reason why many women choose to get an abortion. That knowledge isn't that something that a holistic pro-life movement will focus on. Um, this kind of economic security, healthcare security sort of paradigm. And there are a lot of different ways to attack that. And I think it's important to this discussion, by the way, to note that abortion will never be down to zero in this country. It wasn't at zero before Roe v. Wade. It won't it be at zero. It was higher before. Right, it was higher. Uh, but there was some notes that, you know, if abortion rates go down to zero in, say, Louisiana and Texas, then you can unfurl the mission accomplished banner. This was sort of one of the, the uh, hypotheticals being thrown around in the comments section. But it will never go down to zero. And so... I, I actually would be more sympathetic if abortion simply ceased to exist around the United States, then yeah, um, maybe you don't owe anything else to anyone because you have stopped the killing of babies. But if like me, you believe that of course it can never go down to zero, then you continue to have some responsibility to make the desire to have an abortion go down to zero. And that is what you're getting at. Yes. Cause there is a difference between ban and end and they are not synonyms. Okay. They're not synonyms, especially when abortions are easily obtained uh, through chemical abortions, for example, more easily obtained than they were before Roe when the abortion rate was, according to best data available, higher than it is now when it was banned mostly in the U.S. Um, so in that circumstance, if you if here's just let's just take this one thing and that one thing is we know money is a factor in people getting abortions. If we know that for a fact, and we know that for a fact, and you're in a holistic pro-life movement, what is your responsibility? Now, I don't, I'm not going to sit here and say that that means that policy proposal X or Y is the pro-life response. I can think of policy X or Y as a pro-life response that we should perhaps try. For example, the Romney Child Allowance Program which is more robust than the Biden child allowance program and more robust in a very important way in that it begins prenatally. So if you're an expectant mother, you're under the Romney child allowance plan, which I would hope a Republican administration would enact, you're going to start to get monthly payments that are going to ease the financial insecurity of your family. I think that is worth trying. And some really smart people have done some math on this based on what we know about financial incentives around abortion, and have said that one policy alone could save tens of thousands of lives per year. Is it worth trying? I think yes. Is it the only pro-life response? No. <laughs> but should the pro-life movement prioritize fin easing financial insecurity of young mothers, expectant mothers? I think so. Um, and there's a lot of room for debate on that policy or on those, that suite of policies. Okay, last note, David. There were a lot of men in the comment section telling me how birth control works and what it's for. <laughs> I, no. So let's just do a quick, quick understanding. Um, <laughs> we're not gonna do the entire lesson on how, uh, how babies are made, but we're gonna do a little- <laughs> I'd be a little out of our wheelhouse, I have to say. I mean, a little, but- <laughs> Maybe not as much as you'd think. Um, okay, so first of all, uh, hormonal birth control versus uh, intrauterine devices 
For instance, hormonal birth control prevents the release of eggs. That's its purpose. Now, the way it does this is uh, by releasing progesterone. And because of that, what you're going to also have is your whole system basically is dormant. It's not releasing eggs. The cervical mucus is too thick to allow sperm to get through. And the uterine lining isn't all fluffed up the way that it would be if it were planning to receive a fertilized egg. So while the purpose of the hormonal birth control is to prevent um, the release of any eggs, they don't uh, basically these little these little egg pouches, they get nice and big. You have the uh, follicle stimulating hormone that's like puffing them up and then they release. That's what is being prevented because the entire cycle basically isn't starting. Um, yeah, so because though the whole system isn't set up, yes, if you then had an egg released and then the sperm did get through, the uterus also is not prepared to accept the implantation of that egg because it's not all fluffed up in its little lining. Um, but it's important to know sort of how it works wholly and wholly it's preventing the release of the egg in the first place. Also, a lot of discussion of how birth control, quote, disrupts a woman's system. Okay, I will accept that as long as you don't take beta blockers that disrupt your heart system or anything else uh, like that. So as I mentioned in the comments, and so I will mention it here, I ended up in the emergency room uh, when I was in law school for a ruptured ovarian cyst, and that can lead to infertility, all sorts of bad things, one of which is ending up in the emergency room, by the way, in excruciating pain. Um, by the way, I broke up with my boyfriend after that because he dropped me off, David. He dropped what? me off at the front of the ER and drove back to class. What? No, not good. I was like, no. well, that's, that's breakupable. Um, <laughs> yeah, I would say that's a red line. So the treatment for ruptured ovarian cysts is birth control. So again, it's not disrupting anything. This actually, for a lot of women, is necessary to their health, not just their reproductive health, though it can lead to that as well, um, if you end up getting uh, becoming infertile due to some of these problems. So enough in the comment section about, you know, thoughts on how unnatural birth control is, et cetera. Again, if you take no medicines, you don't take ibuprofen or acetaminophen, beta blockers, anything for your health, fine lecture me on the disruptive nature of birth control. Uh, if you have a religious objection, I think that's totally different. Totally different. But otherwise, there, my rant is over, David. I have now explained uh, a little bit of how babies work. <laughs> well, you know, I got to say that this is maybe the most wide-ranging advisory <laughs> opinions we have ever. All were, and it had even <laughs> included a small dash of relationship advice in it. It did. Don't drop your girlfriend off at the emergency room. Your job is in fact to wait. Yes. Yes, exactly. So that's, we've, we've covered everything from the birds and the bees to very basic dating advice. And I would also say though, that if that's news to you, <laughs> really any of it, frankly, <laughs> <laughs> But if that dating advice is news to you, you've got problems. You, you've got to you've got to reevaluate a lot of things. Well, you're probably <laughs> single. <that> <laughs> probably, probably. And wondering why. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. wondering why. But 
this has been a wide ranging advisory opinions, a lot that we're going to be keeping our eye on that we'll update you about the Michigan case, the fire intervener case. Um, and we've got a lot to keep monitoring in Dobbs and SB8. There's just a ton going on. And we already have almost a full lineup for Thursday. Yep, it's Thursday. only Monday. And we all already have almost a full lineup for Thursday. And there's the emergency pod whenever the nine see fit to hand it to us. Yeah, just not Friday, Court SCOTUS, <laughs> not Friday. And I'm going to be on the road Saturday morning, not Saturday morning, SCOTUS. So. I've got a date with some etouffee and then secondary to that, my husband. <laughs> so that's just, you know, a, a little gentle, a, a little gentle urgings from the advisory opinions team. But we'll be back on Thursday with a lot more. So uh, please stay tuned or please tune back in on Thursday. And also, um, you know what? Uh, I, it's, we still got a long way between us and the remnant. But in a text message to me, Jonah was feeling the heat. He was feeling the heat. Good. Called us a niche podcast. A niche podcast that keeps calling out the remnant. Um, so please go rate us at Apple Podcasts to uh, catch the remnant. That's our, 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 that's our call for 2022. Catch the remnant in 2022. So please go rate us. Oh, and the new music is coming. New music coming? Oh, man, I can't wait. Uh, the, the people have spoken resoundingly on that, as a matter of fact, sir. So it will be new music. Um, so please rate us. Please subscribe. Please check us out at thedispatch.com, and we'll talk to you on Thursday. 